Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, Pastor Josh explains the purpose of the law of God. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, The Covenant of Life. And we are in uh, Romans, my mind is all over the place, God give me help, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, I've been anxious to get to this message, Um, it's a little bit more on the technical side, but there is stuff here that you need for your joy. Romans chapter 3, we're in this section of verses 9 through 20, so I'm going to read it again. We are now made our way to verses 19 and 20, so let's read it together. I need God's grace, so we're going to pray for it, and and, and then we'll get into it. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. And all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, you are the great treasure and you are the great joy. Lord, knowing you is our joy. God, we're not saying that knowing you is just one of the nice, enjoyable things out of thousands of different good things we can have. No, God, we are declaring knowing you is the great joy for which we were created. All that our heart yearns for, all that we desire, God, is found in you. You're the fountain of delight. You're the fountain of joy. And you reveal yourself in your word. God, we who are your people, we love your word. We love it. We love it. We, we dig and we mine to get the treasures out of your word. And every time we find another, another treasure in it, God, you just give us more joy. You make our, you make our capacity for satisfaction bigger. You show us more of your glory. God, in This text has more treasures, more joy, and I beg God that you give it. If we're going to understand it, God, we're going to have to be given a a great grace. Your power toward us is going to have to be very evident, so we ask for that, God. Give us the ability to benefit. 
Lord, give our minds the ability to think with clarity and depth, to, to not give up whenever thinking gets hard, but Lord, to put in the, the work. And, and Lord, I pray, show us your truths as you have logic laid out for us. Give us the ability to follow that. Please, God, uh, my task in trying to say it in a way that's not confusing as I tend to do. Please, God, give me grace to say it with clarity, to preach in a way that's helpful. Lord, please make this time profitable for seeing your glory. Draw us near God, we ask. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. There's a scene in that book that I'm all the time not shutting up about called Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm all the time encouraging you to read. There's a scene where, um, as Christian, the main character of the story, and it's presented as an allegory of the Christian life, He's journeying towards the celestial city, journeying towards heaven. He feels this great burden on his back, which represents the guilt that he feels over his sin. And he's met a man named Evangelist who has pointed him the path of salvation where he can be rid of this burden and have eternal life. He points him the direction to the yonder gate. When you pass through the gate, representing coming to Christ, conversion, there you will be made right with God. Well, Christian journeys on this path, but it is laden with troubles and the slew of despond and difficulties. And so he meets a man by the name of Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells him, I know where you can be rid of that burden. Do you see that hill over there in the distance? Christian sees it very clearly. And he says, on top of that hill lives a man named Legality. He has a son named Civility. Speaking of the law and being good and civil. If you go up to Mr. Law, Mr. Legality, he specializes in this. He'll help you get rid of your burden. So Christian leaves the path towards the gate diverts his direction heading over towards the hill. But as he begins to approach the hill, the closer he gets, he begins to see this is no hill, this is a mountain. In fact, it's a terrifying mountain. As he draws near, there is smoke and fire and lightning and he begins to fear that he would be burned as he gets there. As he comes to the foot of the mountain, it is almost as though the mountain is leaning over against him and he fears the mountain might actually fall on him and crush him. He finds that the closer he comes, the greater the weight of the burden that he feels. Well, as John Bunyan described that scene right there, he had an intention. And by the way, that, that imagery is straight out of the book of Hebrews. It's not an exaggerated kind of illustration. Straight out of the book of Hebrews. Where he meant to illustrate this idea that oftentimes as people try to, in whatever their minds conceive of, get right with God, find the way to heaven, they often run to the law. They often run to Mount Sinai, that mountain there in Pilgrim's Progress is meant to be a picture of what happened there in Exodus chapter 19. When God brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, brought them into the wilderness, the first place he brought them was to Mount Sinai. God brought them to a mountain billowing with smoke, fire and crashes of lightning, terrifying sounds, terrifying sights. 
then that is where God spoke the law. The law. So Christian comes here and sees this is a mountain I cannot climb. Thankfully, in the book, he meets Evangelist once again. Evangelist rebukes him and puts him back on the right path. But we see this reality, friends. Oftentimes, as people think about getting right with God and and finding their way to heaven, they oftentimes think this, I'll be good. Now, the world doesn't use the language of, I'll obey the law of God. No, they oftentimes say things like, I got a good heart and I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person. But the way that the Bible would say that is, you're trying to attain righteousness by keeping the law of God. Many of the old hymns, as you look at the words there, oftentimes will we'll, we'll sing of this truth right here. Against the God who ruled the, rules the sky, I fought with hands uplifted high. But an eternal counsel rang, almighty love, arrest that man. I, found, I felt the arrows of disgrace and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view to Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice frowned with scowling face. This mountain is no hiding place. Oftentimes in an attempt to obey God through the law, we think this is how I can be made right only to get there and find there is a scowling face of justice that is not going to allow me to enter the kingdom of heaven by this route. There is another way that God has made for us to be right with him. This is where the text has been building. We've been in this depressing and dark section for some time, looking at our sin and looking at where we stand according to the law, according to strict justice. But where we're going as we come to verse 21, those glorious words, but now... This way of salvation is presented to us. The triumphant words will be shown that apart from the law, apart from obedience, apart from my attempts to be good, God has made a way to be right with him. It is the way of being made right with God through faith in Christ and not my attempts at works or a good heart. And today we we come to this final section that brings that out in in clarity. Let me give a little bit of an encouragement to you today before we get started. Let me ask you for this, please. Stay with me and don't give up on me. We've mentioned that there are many passages of the Bible that even children can understand. The Bible has been written to all, but, but, but comprehend this. There are some sections that you got to work hard for. And I am telling you that we're going to look at about three of them today because not only here verses 19 and 20, is there a little bit of a a quick logical argument, but we're going to go to Galatians where there's a logical argument. We're going to go to Romans 5 where there's a logical argument that is set up here and, and thinking logically and abstract thought, it's not easy. But listen, the best things never are. The best treasures you got to dig deep for. And guys, sometimes the Bible... It's like you got to beat your head against it until finally that gold nugget releases and then you get it in your hands. It's been said that there are some truths you are going to have to spend 10 deep, uninterrupted hours thinking on before the light bulb comes on and you get it. And then there's another truth that takes another 10 hours. And sometimes you got to take two of those truths, put them together for another 10 hours to get the one there. The point is, 
God has given his word and it is accessible, but it is not always easy. And there are times where you got to just keep beating your head against the text, read it again, read it again, read it again, read a commentary, read it again. And then finally it releases you like, oh, this is beautiful. This is good. And I'm telling you right now, there are treasures in the text here to show you joy. But, but we got to stay with it. We got we to gotta dig deep. You got to be here. You got to be here. You got to be studying. You got to be reading on your own. You got to keep going in this. Here's what we've seen so far in this passage to get just the, just the 30 second jog of the memory here. We started this section looking at the overview of the doctrine, man in sin, man under sin. Then we looked at two points from this passage. All of mankind is in sin meaning every people group and every soul is all under sin. And then secondly, we saw that all of man is sinful, meaning every part of who we are, head to toe, inside and outside, feet and eyes, it's all been affected by sin. Then we followed it up by looking at the root of sin that we have not responded to God as he is worthy of, that the foremost sin we have, the root of every other sin, is that we do not treasure God as he deserves and we do not fear God like he is holy, holy, holy. Now we're ready to finish up this passage with the last two points made in this section, points three and four. So if you're following uh, kind of in the outline we've had there, points three and four, here is number three. Therefore, no man will be justified by his own merit or goodness. Think about the logical argument that's been building. Um, jump back to chapter two, verse six for a moment. And let me show you some of the things that have been explained here. Chapter two, verse six, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Just a very basic statement of justice. Verse seven, those who, um, those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immor immortality, eternal life. Verse uh, 10 there, the glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's the basic statement. Those who obey the law will live. You will have eternal life if you obey the law. But if you don't listen to the next thing I say, you're going to be a heretic. You obey the law, you will live. But the text followed that up with, you haven't and you can't. So whenever the Bible says there, if you obey the law, you will live, there are a lot of legalists who shout their amen and don't read the rest of chapter two and then into chapter three where the scripture shows you no one has, the Gentile has not, the non-Jewish person, the Jew has not. Long section there in chapter two, showing that even the people who had the scriptures first, they have not obeyed the law. No one has. So that means that that avenue is not a road you're going to be right with God on. The road to eternal life is a toll road. The price is righteousness. As you are on that road and you come to where you want to enter the gates of the kingdom of heaven and you must pay that toll of righteousness, if you attempt to give your own goodness, the works you have acquired, 
Whatever law-keeping, religiosity, good heart, good deeds you think you have, if you try to offer that as entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you will be found insufficient. But the big reveal and the big triumphant statement is God has made a way for you to be righteous, for you to have a righteousness to give on that day, but it is a righteousness outside of yourself. A righteousness you have not earned or acquired, a righteousness that is given. It is the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account by faith. So all of this argument, all of this logic is building up to this. That is where we're going. But before we will understand that big reveal, there are two more blocks that need laid. See, what's been happening in the, in the book of Romans, this logical argument is there's a foundation and then, and then stones, blocks are being laid one on top of another and you don't understand this high one until we've securely laid the foundations underneath it. In verse 29, there's a big part of the argument being built that proves the gospel and I, I, don't, I don't say this to try to be judgy or anything like that, but I am just telling you a, a reality. Most Christians don't understand the block that comes before it. And therefore, when they try to understand other passages of the Bible, they don't get it. They come to chapter seven and have no clue what's going on. What do you mean we've died to the law? There are these foundations that have to be laid. Let me rabbit trail for you here just a second. Every part of the gospel that you do not get it is joy you're missing out on. Every part of the gospel, the beautiful, wonderful treasure of the message of Christ, every part of it that we miss or we don't study or we skip out on, every part of it that you don't have, it's joy that is available to you. L listen to me, friends. The big point of the Bible is not to learn facts so that you do well at Bible Jeopardy. The big point is you get God through the scriptures. There is no greater joy, there is no greater pleasure in this world than the joy and the satisfaction, that richness of treasure of knowing God through Christ. And you get him through the scriptures. I'm not overstating that point. That's not just what preachers say because it's Sunday and we're at church. I mean this. You go deep and you will find that the treasures of knowing God, they're worth bleeding for. That's why Paul said, if suffering is what it takes to get to know Christ, then give me more suffering. Knowing him is worth it and you get him in the word. And God has arranged all of this that many of these great treasures you do got to work hard for. We're talking about the kinds of things that take decades. You're just not going to get it by Sunday only Christianity. You're going to have to, you're going to have to go after God. You're going to have to read. You're going to have to think. You're going to have to lay in bed at night. As the Psalms say, it's my joy. I look forward to bedtime so that I can lay there and think about all of your glories. You got to go hard to get these treasures. And I'm telling you right now, God has revealed his glory most magnificently in what he's done in Christ. But a lot of times when folks get to the technical parts that require difficult abstract thinking, they wanna bail out. 
Listen, don't be satisfied with just staying in the realm of cliches written on the back of Christian t-shirts. Go deep, bang your head against the text and get those nuggets to break free those treasures and it is joy. And for for us to fully appreciate and understand the full gospel, there are some of these foundations that we got to work for in order to get this. We're learning. The book of Romans is not just giving you facts. It's teaching you to exalt in God by knowing the gospel, by seeing who he is. So every dimension, every part, every stone we're laying, it's all showing you more of God. And there are two blocks laid in the text this morning that if you don't understand securely, then when we go to say, here's the glory you have in Christ, we can get some of it, but it'll be shaky. So here's this first block. And then we're going to talk about it. All of the world, not just the Jewish people, but all of the world are under the law of God. Now, you hear that and you can think, okay, pastor, all that buildup about all this hard stuff. And that's really not all that tough. We've even had seen that in the book of Romans. We have had it mentioned. Now we're going to go deeper. See, here's what the book of Romans does a lot. A, a truth will be mentioned in order to make a point, but then there will be a whole chapter later that's all fleshing out that one big truth. Chapter six is an entire explanation of, now that you're in Christ, you shouldn't just go sin. That seems easy, there's a lot more to it. Chapter seven is this whole explanation of, you have died to the law and you've been brought into a new covenant. But we don't understand those things until we understand what comes before it. So. In looking at this, as we begin to um, explore, the truth that all mankind is under the law of God has been mentioned, but now we're going to go deeper. So here's the logic. Look at it in the text in verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. All right, let's just pause on those two phrases and think on it. Here's what it means. The law only applies to the people who are under the authority of the law. All right, so here's for instance, the laws of Belgium do not apply to you right now sitting on American soil. And you should be glad about that. They're euthanizing people left and right over there. You may want me to go further on that. We're not going to do that right now. You are under a different law, depending on where you are. So the law of God only applies to the people who are under that law. So who is under that law? Who is under that authority of the law? All right, well, let's think through verse 19 again. For whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Who's under the authority of the law of God? Every mouth, all the world. Every soul, Jew and Gentile, everybody. Look at chapter 1, verse 32 for a moment. Here's one of the places that he, uh, we, he began to see this build up. Verse 32, and although they, remember that was talking about the nations, they 
Know the ordinance of God. How did the Gentiles without the scriptures know the ordinance of God? Earlier in chapter one, we saw this. It was written on their hearts. Chapter two, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And then he continues to go on there to explain more. So here's the reality. Gentiles who did not have the scriptures are still under the law of God. Gentiles who did not have the words that God spoke at Mount Sinai written out in paper and on stone for them still have the law of God written internally on their hearts. They weren't there at Mount Sinai. They didn't have the Bible, but they did have the scriptures. And here's the first reason why that matters. The popular idea in the first century was that only Israel was under the law of God and the rest of the world did not have the law of God. Does that make sense? That was a popular belief, just like America has some popular beliefs and things like this. First century, that was a popular belief. They boasted in the fact, hey, we're the ones who have the law. We're special. Part of the point that the book of Romans is making is they have the law of God too. It's been written on their hearts. And so it led them to some very foolish places. When you have error in your thinking, that infection always seeps out. It doesn't always stay in one place. It seeps out into the other places of your thinking. It starts to infect you in other places. And this led them to some really serious errors in other parts of their thinking. And that is why numerous times in this book, the point is made that everyone is under the law of God. Now, I want to take a little bit of time and I want to show it to you. And there's a reason why I got to do this. There's a reason why I have to spend a little bit of time arguing the text here. It's because even today in American church, there are many who do not believe this truth. They should. It's biblical. I'm going to show it to you, but it is argued. So I'm going to show this to you. Chapter four, verse 15. Because this was a popular misunderstanding, he addresses it numerous times always using logic. So chapter four, verse 15, the main subject of chapter four is that we are made right with God by faith and not by works. And in the midst of that, here's one of the things he says, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath. And then he says kind of a cheeky statement afterwards to kind of prove a point to those who were hearing this and didn't agree with that. For where there is no law, there also is no violation. All right, so here's what that first part says. Where there is no law, or excuse me, the law brings about wrath. The law cannot save you. The only thing that the law does for us sinners who break it is condemn us because we have broken it. But then he follows it up with where there is no law, there also is no violation. Let's say you visit a land where there is no government, uh, no laws, and no police. And let's pretend you drive a car there. How fast can you drive the car before you break the speed limit? There is no law. You'll never break the speed limit. You can go as fast as you want because where there is no law, there is no violation. Here's the point Paul is making. If the Gentiles have no law, then that means they've never broken a single one of God's laws. That means they've never sinned. 
You see the point that he's making there to the Jews who did not believe this? So he makes this point. Look, we know that they have sinned. And if they sin, then what does that mean? They're under the law of God, the law that we will sometimes call the moral law. Look over to chapter five, a little bit more of a complicated one. Chapter five, the subject of the chapter, the big one is imputation. Okay, big word, okay? We're gonna have a whole study on all these big words that we're using here. Imputation is basically this. When we say that on the cross, Jesus took our place, that my sins were put onto Christ, that he took the curse for me, that's imputation. When we say that Christ's righteousness is counted as mine, that's imputation. Well, chapter five deals with those two, but it also adds in another one. The imputation of Adam's sin down through the lineage of mankind. You were born a sinner. Why? Because of Adam and Eve. Because you are a descendant of Adam. So all of that is going on. And in the midst of that discussion, find verse 12. Follow follow along here. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For until the law, meaning until Mount Sinai, until the law was spelled out in clarity, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Okay, here, let's let's think through the logic here. If the nations are not under the law of God, then that means they've never broken a single one of God's laws. And if they're not, if they've not sinned, they're not guilty of anything. And if they weren't guilty of anything, then death would not have passed on because death comes because of sin. So you see where he's going here. He's kind of walking you down. If they've not under the law, then they've never sinned. If they've not sinned, then they have no guilt. If they have no guilt, then they never would have died but we know that all people die. Therefore, they have guilt. Therefore, they have sin. Therefore, they are under the law of God. So following the argument that he's laying out here, he is proving everybody has the law of God. All mankind is under the law of God. They are born into an arrangement. You were born into an arrangement, into a deal under the law. Now, everyone has the law of God written on their hearts. We sometimes call that the moral law. But in addition to the moral law written on everyone's hearts, here's what God did at Mount Sinai when God spoke the law and entered into that covenant on that day, God wrote it all out with clarity. When he brought them out of Egypt into the Exodus, at that mountain, he spoke the law. But here's part of the point. The law of God existed before Mount Sinai. It just had not been written down yet. Not in clarity. It had not been engraved on stone. It had only been written on the hearts. And at Mount Sinai, God wrote it down. He gave Israel the law spelled out clearly. Now, if you remember, it's kind of bigger study. He also added some parts just for Israel, that part that we call the ceremonial law. Remember this about the temple, the priest, the sacrifices, etc. So let's think about it like this. Let's say that the man living on an island in Moses's day, 
He was born on that island. He never had scriptures. The scriptures had not been written yet. God came and spoke the scriptures to Israel and gave the ceremonial law. So at that moment, at that instance, Israel was then under the ceremonial law as well as the moral law written on everyone's hearts. That man on the island was not bound to the ceremonial law, but only to the moral law written on his hearts. But still yet, what this means is every soul, all of mankind is under what we can just summarize as calling the law of God. But being under the law means some things. It doesn't just mean that there are rules. Here's the other part. It means that there are consequences. All mankind is born into an arrangement, a deal. All mankind is born into a covenant. Some call it the covenant of works. Some call it the covenant of life. Some call it the covenant with Adam. Doesn't really matter what you call it. I've titled it the covenant of life because that's what your children are learning back here. Yes, this is big enough stuff that we're educating the children, training them in these kinds of things back there. But here is the essence of that covenant of works, that covenant of life. What did God say to Adam in the garden? If you obey me, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. That's the covenant of life. The covenant of works. That's the law. One way of just simply spelling it out is everyone is under the law of God. And the essence of it is this. Obey God and live. Disobey and die. To see that, uh, turn to chapter 10 of Romans for a moment. Chapter 10, verse 5. Look and see what he says here, chapter 10, 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. All right? So if you obey the law of God, you live. Leviticus 18, if you keep my statutes and my commandments, you will live. Now let me take you to Galatians. All right? If your head hurts, the migraine's going to come on harder. Galatians chapter 3, find verse 10. Another section here where he sets up a logical argument. You just have this again and again happening here. So Galatians chapter 3, find verse 10. Let's read along here. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Here's why. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for, and here's another quote from the Old Testament, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Okay, so here's the essence of the argument that he makes right there. In verse 12, he got this quote from the Old Testament. If you keep all the commandments of God, you will live. But here's the question. What happens if you keep most of them, but not all of them? What happens if like many want to say, but I'm a good person. I keep almost all of God's commandments. What happens if you keep most of them, but only break some of them? Well, verse 10, there is a quote from the Old Testament. If you break the law anywhere, 
you are cursed. Well, I just don't think that's fair. Let me ask you this. Did Bill Cosby get arrested because he broke every law in society? Or just the one about sexual assault? Should we let him out? Because he kept most of them? That's not the way law works. You live under American law. Here's the essence of American law. You obey the law, you get to live in society. You break the law, you are punished. That's the way law works. And what the law of God says is this. You obey it, you keep it to perfection, awesome. You will have life, eternal life. But the problem is we break it. If you break God's law, you get the punishment. What is the punishment? Scripture says it is the curse of God. It is death, but death meant in its full definition, which is spelled out in some passages as including hell. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, let me prove one more thing in this, and it is an important one. In addition to calling this whole arrangement law, the Bible will also call it a covenant. And it is important that we see that it is a covenant. What is, what is a covenant? A covenant is an arrangement. It is a relationship where there are expectations. Marriage is a covenant. Anybody who ever says the marriage is just a piece of paper, okay, doesn't believe the Bible and really hasn't thought about it very much. Marriage is a covenant. There are solemn oaths and promises that are a part of this covenant. Well, God created mankind in covenant with himself. You and I were born into a covenant in this world. Now, in Genesis 1, at creation, the word covenant is not used, but later on in the Bible, the word covenant is used to describe what happened back there in Genesis 1, at creation. Hosea 6, 7, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Now, let me pause here for just a second and another one of these rabbit trails that we get today. The kids back here in our children's time, part of the curriculum that we were just so excited about the Blairs implementing and just taking uh, the, the training happening here to just another level is half of the time they're going to spend in catechism. By the way, catechism is not just a children's thing. Some of the greatest theological training in the world happens through catechism, even for adults and such. But let me read to you questions 23 to 28 that they're going to be learning back there. So this is what the kids are learning. What covenant did God make with Adam? Answer, the covenant of life. What is a covenant? A relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. In the covenant of life, what did God require Adam to do? To obey God perfectly. What did God promise in the covenant of life? to reward Adam with life if he obeyed God perfectly. What did God threaten in the covenant of life? To punish Adam with death if he disobeyed God. Did Adam keep the covenant of life? No, he sinned against God. In a genius way, the kids back here are going to be learning the beautiful treasures that are here in Romans 3. Now, there's going to be more explanation that is needed, but there is a reason why this has been written into the, into the catechisms through history. These are foundations that are sometimes not laid, and it leads to misunderstanding there. And by the way, let me say this. 
dad's in the room. You go to tuck your little girl in at bed at night and she says, Daddy, if Adam was born into the covenant of life, does that mean that I am too? Let me tell you what will not be helpful in that moment. Uh, let me go get your mother and we'll find out. <laughs> Study, know these things, grow. You, we need these truths right here. Study hard. But the answer to that question is yes, 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 yes. The law is not just Old Testament. You were born under the law of God. You were born into the covenant of works, the covenant of life, because you are sons and daughters of Adam. You have been born into this lineage. And in that covenant, there is nothing but death for you. You need out of that covenant. You need into a different one. And there is a new covenant in Christ. It is a covenant of grace. It is a covenant where we are forgiven and cleansed of our sins. That's why this matters. That's where we're building. And that's why when many read chapter 7, they have no clue what's being said there. But you will. When we get to chapter 7, it will be this glorious, we're freed from the law and brought into grace. It is so good. Let me tell you another reason why this matters. I told you number one was because of the popular belief in the first century. Let me tell you another belief that is popular today and why this matters. If your child is in public school, they are being catechized. They are having doctrine taught to you. They just don't call it doctrine. They are being taught on a regular basis. You are beautiful just the way you are. Let me tell you what the average kid in the average Sunday school in America is being taught. You are beautiful just the way you are ironically saying the exact same thing, which is essentially declaring this, you are already right with God. There is nothing that you need. You are already fully okay. There's nothing that you need. Your children need to know they've been born under the law, that they've been born into the covenant of life, the covenant of works. The average child spends 1,260 hours at school per year. Going to take some more work than just a Bible coloring sheet to train them in doctrine and in knowledge. They need these catechisms. They need this training in the word of God. So let me summarize it. All the world, all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, has been born into this arrangement, this covenant, born under the law of God. And so this means this, everyone is accountable to God. Let me say it more specifically because sometimes we just use the word God very generically, but there's a reason why the Bible is very specific to call him by his name, Yahweh. There is also the belief that is popular and it, is, it still happens today. This idea that different people groups have their own gods and they are accountable to their God. Many in the first century believe that one people group is accountable to Asherah. Some are accountable to Molech. Israel was accountable to Yahweh. Here's what the scripture is saying. Everyone born under the creator's hand is all accountable to the one true and living God, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God did make a covenant with Israel, but he also made a covenant with the world in Adam. We are all descended from Adam. So here's the effect, verse 20, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. 
On the day of judgment, there will be no sovereign citizens. You ever encountered this? You ever encountered some of those who live on American soil but claim to be a sovereign citizen, meaning I'm not accountable to the laws of America? <laughs> nice try. On the day of judgment, there will be no one who is able to claim in any way, well, I wasn't under that law. I was born of the nations. I didn't have the scriptures. I didn't have your law. Every mouth will be closed and all the world accountable to God. All the excuses, all the justifications, all the yow buts, all the arguing will all stop and all the world will be silent before the one they now know holds the authority of the cosmos in his hands and the Lord Jesus Christ will step forward to judge as angels fall and sing his glory. Here's number four and it'll be faster. The purpose of the law is to expose sin, not to save. Here's the question that oftentimes people ask today in their own discovery of the Bible, and they've been asking it for thousands of years. It is this right here. Well, if the law doesn't save, then why did God give it? The Jewish people wrongly assumed, not all, we see many examples in the scripture of those who understood properly, but it was a common misunderstanding God gave the law so that we could be righteous by it. Listen, that's exactly like today. Still the most popular religious belief is I get heaven because I'm good. Even though a thousand places in the Bible show that to be false, why does everybody believe it? Because Satan's great endeavor is to keep you out of the scriptures, to keep your nose in a phone instead of the Bible. Keep them out of the word and then they do not see these truths. But if God did not give the law for the purpose of saving, then why did he give it? Verse 20, back in Romans 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the primary reason why God gave it. See, everyone was under the law from creation. Why did God speak it in clarity? Why did God write it down in scriptures? And then the Bible makes this point as well. Engrave part of it in stone. Why did he do this? To show our sin. We are sinful. We are sinful. But we oftentimes justify ourselves. We are sinful. And yet we find all kinds of reasons and justifications for why. What I did is not really that bad. I mean, I mean... Even us Christians, we got to be very careful of this. At some point in your Christian life, you're going to justify some sin. And that means that there's some part of the Bible that you're like, yeah, but, but, but because of this situation, here's why it's okay. Or here's my take on that passage. At some point, it's going to happen. If we even have the scriptures and we're in danger of doing that then how much more if God had never written out the law in clarity? How much would we have justified ourselves? God wrote out the law in clarity to show us. The law is like a plumb line showing what true straight is and seeing how we are tilted off. The law is like a mirror where you see the dirt on your face. It was there all along, but you didn't know it. The law is like a light 
shining in a room. There were all kinds of creepy crawlies and nasty mold. It was there the whole time. We didn't know it. The light shines and shows. The law is like, have you ever held a piece of paper and you thought it was white until somebody brought you a piece of paper that was like really brilliant white. And then you put it up and all of a sudden this one looks dingy. The law is like that brilliant crystal clean, pure white that shows the dinginess of our own souls. The law shows you the character of God. That is a huge point. It needs its own sermon. The law shows you the character of God. The law shows you what holiness really is. And when you see what true holiness is, you see the dinginess of your own soul. This is what the law does. What the law does not do is provide a way to save you. By the way, have you ever heard someone say, this is a common belief by Christians? Well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by works, but now in the New Testament, we're saved by faith. To quote the great theologian Dwight Schrute, false. <laughs> Even from the book of Genesis, even from the book of Genesis, we are shown that though we are condemned by the law, the covenant of works, God made another way. Even to Abraham in Genesis 15, even to Cain in Genesis 4, we are shown that by turning away from rebellion and trusting in him, there is righteousness a different way. Well, throughout this book, we're going to talk a whole lot more about law. I know it's something people shy away from, but don't run from it. Because as you see it, you're seeing the beauty of the gospel more and more. We're going to see that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law was good. The law is good. The problem is us and our inability to keep it. We're going to see in chapter 8 that the law is powerless to save. It offers nothing to the sinner. It only condemns. But friends, the gospel, on the other hand, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Does that central idea of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 have more ring and more beauty to it now? The law condemns. It has no power. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is what tells you the message of Jesus. He who died to deliver you from the death that the law pronounces on you as judgment. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven by your own goodness. You need another way. You need a righteousness that has to come from outside of yourselves, an alien righteousness given to you. And that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To say it very simply, look to Christ and you will be saved. Trust in Christ and God will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, say thank you for the deep things you've revealed. Thank you that your word reveals the gospel to children, but thank you also, O oh God, that there are these treasures that we will keep digging till we die and then on into eternity. Please give us more and more understanding of these things. God, I pray that any in the room this morning that has been operating under the idea that they're already fine with you will now see 
that there is a miracle they need. There's forgiveness, cleansing they need, and it is only in Christ by faith. Draw them to yourself. Lord, we love you and thank you. We ask all these things through Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled, The Covenant of Life. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.